Good morning, Bridge. How are we doing, guys? So good to be in the house of the Lord. So glad you're here. Those of you that are watching online, thank you so much. I got an email this morning from somebody in Kansas. Thank you so much for taking the time to reach out to us. I shared your email with the rest of the staff. So blessed to have uh, so many people from around the country watching us and being a part of what God is doing. You know, there's actually more people watching online these days than there are attending in the room. And we're just excited about how God's just taking the, the walls off of, of the limitations for the gospel to go forward. And so we get contacts from all over the world, literally the Philippines, from Central America, from all over the country. But we're glad that you're here in the house of the Lord as well. So can, I just, can we start with a little survey, uh, just a one question survey. How many of you, by show of hands, how many of you would acknowledge that men, uh, how do I say this gently, say and do dumb stuff sometimes? God bless that hand, I see that hand. Guys, come on, be honest. We do. Come on, we do. We, it, it may be in the name of fun, in the name of adventure. It may be peer pressure. It may be just because we didn't think it through, whatever, whatever you want to call it. I mean, you tell me if you've ever heard any of these famous last words of men, okay? Oh, honey, you look fat in those jeans. Or just met a woman in a store and said, oh, how long you been pregnant? And she isn't pregnant. Yeah, that's a, that's a killer, isn't it? Here's one that I identify with. I know I'm not an electrician, but how hard can it be? That's a good one. And Jeff Foxworthy, of course, says, we all know what's coming when we hear the words, hey, watch this. <laughs> Game over. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. We say and do dumb stuff, and sometimes they are our last words on earth. If you've ever researched the Darwin Awards, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, go home and Google it. Don't do it now. Put your phones down. Uh, but the Darwin Awards are awards that are given every year to men who do dumb stuff and it ultimately takes their life. And so uh, th there's another side of the spectrum, though, that we want to talk about. And that's that's another type of last words. And, and they're actually referred to in the court systems as dying declarations. And dying declarations, if you know anything about the legal system, carry a lot more weight than any other kind of witness. I mean, a, a dying declaration carries the, 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 the power of evidence even though that witness cannot be cross-examined because they've died. And so it, if it's declared a dying declaration, then it carries all kinds of, of weight. So what if we had the dying declarations of a man who not only was not dumb, never did anything without thinking it through, but was and is in fact the son of God. What if we had his dying declarations? How much weight do you suppose those words would carry? How much should we lean into what he had to say? We're kicking off a little mini-series today leading up to Easter Sunday. We're simply calling famous last words and doing these three Sundays. We're going to look at some of the phrases, three of the phrases, in fact, that Jesus uttered from the cross during those last moments that he was alive on earth before his resurrection and ascension to the Father. We're going to take a closer look at three of them. There are actually seven of them, but because we've got three weeks, we're going to look at the first phrase he uttered, the middle phrase he uttered, and then the last thing that he said before he 
I gave up the ghost, and so let's lean into it. But first, let's set the scene, okay? So kind of go with me in your mind, whatever level of information you have or knowledge you have of those scenes. It's, it's set up for us in Luke chapter 23, verse 33. If you've got a Bible, you can go there. You can go to the Bridge NC app on your phone or tablet if you want to. You can look on the screens, and you'll see it as well. But uh, I want us to read the Scriptures together. Here we go. Luke chapter 23, verse 33. One, two, three, go. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. No doubt you've seen that image many, many times on TV and movies and books and, and artist works and maybe uh, in churches, whatever else. We've seen that image with, with Jesus hang, hanging in the center cross, two uh, criminals on either side on the hill that we call Calvary, Golgotha, the place of the skull. But I want us to go behind the image for just a second. Perhaps the most famous passage of Scripture of all is John chapter 3.16. Uh, again, you've heard that in football games in various places around the world. But here we go. For God so loved the, the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Of course, his one and only son is Jesus of Nazareth, born of a virgin, without a sin nature, lived a perfect life, sinless life, did God's will, the Father's will perfectly while he was here, loved everybody, including those who killed him, tortured him, and killed him. He loved everybody unconditionally. He taught these revolutionary uh, kind of against-the-grain ideas uh, until the religious leaders of the day decided they would try to trap him with their words, and they'd ask him difficult questions, and he would answer their questions just as calmly as he could be. And then he would turn and, and say, you, you guys understand who these men are. He'd say to the crowds, you know who these men are? They're hypocrites. You know, you know who these men are? These, these men are, are, are painted mausoleums full of dead men's bones. Come on, Jesus, tell me how you really feel. I mean, he, he wasn't uh, uh, afraid of those guys. He wasn't worried about those guys. He'd just look at him and say, look, you got a speck in your eye. Uh, your brother's got a speck in his eye. you got a big old plank hanging out of yours. He, 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 he took them on. He performed countless miracles preached a message of hope and love and grace. His life changed countless lives, both while he was here and in the years since then. In the end, he was betrayed by one of his own for a few gold coins, Took in, taken through a series of illegal trials all night long, even though he did absolutely nothing wrong. Even Pilate himself said, I find no fault in him, but still, they tore his clothes off, they tortured him, they beat him with a cat of nine tails until the flesh hung from his body. They made a mock crown of these two-inch spiky thorns and pressed it into his brow. During that, Roman soldiers who had blindfolded him would hit him. They'd punch him in the face and say, if you're really the son of God, tell me who hit you. And he could have, he could have, he could have not only told that Roman soldier who he was, he could have told him every sin he ever committed and every sin his father ever committed, every sin his grandfather ever committed, but he just took it. He just stood there. They spit on him. They beat him within an inch of his life. Then they laid this 70 or 80 pound rough hewn beam on his shoulders and made him carry it to the mount called Calvary until he collapsed. And then they drove spikes through his wrists and his feet. 
lifted that cross and dropped it with a thud into the hole they had prepared for him. And there, suspended between heaven and earth, the crowds who followed along and stood watching saw his lips begin to move. Are you in the moment? They saw his lips begin to move. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was in that crowd and I just witnessed what I just described to you and suddenly I see him about to speak, I would be going, hey, guys, shut up. He's about to say something. Come on, shut up. I'd be cupping my ear. I'd be going, I want to hear this. I don't know what this is going to be, but this is going to be good. I want to hear what he's about to say. Is he about to curse the people that did this to him? Is he about to call lightning to strike them all dead right here? Is he about to call 10,000 angels to wipe them out? Am I going to be wiped out in the fray? I would want to hear what he's got to say. I'd want to know what's about to come from his lips. Is he just going to cry out in pain for hope and help? What's he going to say? Luke 23, 34 first words from his lips father forgive them for they do not know what they're doing read it with me come on you can whisper it if you like father forgive them for they do not know what they're doing what what are you are you kidding me? Uh, they just lied about him, abused him, betrayed him, beat him, tortured him. And as he hangs there dying, they're rolling dice for his clothes at the foot of his cross. And the words that come out of his mouth are, Father, forgive them. I don't know about you guys, but if I was in that setting, I can promise you those would not be the first words that came out of my mouth. And how do I know? Because in the times that I've been hurt through the years, those were not the first words that came out of my mouth, and my pain was not nearly as uh, even close to what he endured. And there he hung, uttering those words. Those words tell me three things that I think are really critical for us to know. And so I'm going to take just a couple of minutes before I let you go and just unpack that a little bit. The first two pretty quickly. I want to camp out on the third one because I think it's critical for our own health and future. But it tells me three things. The first thing those words tell me is that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Savior of the world. I mean, the grace alone, for that to be the first words out of his mouth, tells me this was no normal human being. This is not just a guy who took on a persona. This is God. This is Messiah. This is the Savior of the world. Add to that that there were so many prophecies made seven, eight hundred years before this moment that came true. One of them describing this very event. Isaiah said in 53, 12 of his book, he willingly gave his life and was treated like a criminal, but he carried away the sins of many people and asked forgiveness for those who sinned. He wrote those words 700 years before the event that we're talking about. I mean, think about that for a minute. If I came to you right now and said, I need you to tell me what's going to happen on this day in the year 2721, what are the odds that you could do it? 
it's not possible. It's not humanly possible. It had to be God speaking through Isaiah to give us those kinds of words to let us know, in fact, that this is my beloved son, my one and only son, my only begotten son, whichever phrase you want to use, this was God's son sent to save the world. Think about it for just a minute now, because there's a second thing I want you to get, and that is that not only does it establish that he's the Messiah, Savior of the world, it also tells me that our greatest need, our greatest need, my greatest need and yours is forgiveness. Can I get an amen? Go back to Luke 23. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Why? What did it say? Because they don't know what they're doing. Think about that for a minute. The Roman soldiers are treating him like a criminal. Why are they treating him like a criminal? Because they were told he was a criminal. They're treating him like a criminal because they were led to believe that he was in fact. They didn't have a clue who this man was. They had no clue what he'd done or didn't do. They, they just treated him like a criminal because they were told that's who he was. And because he's hanging between two well-known criminals, then therefore he must be a criminal. They had no idea the implications of their actions or that they were being pawns of the devil who thought he had won the great victory that day. Think about that for a minute. Somebody told me an illustration story the other day that I think fits the scene. It'll give you some perspective. Country family sitting on the front porch one afternoon, and one of their hunting hounds starts howling. After a minute, the hound breaks off, and the other hounds start howling, and they follow him. And the daddy turns to his boys, and his boy says, you know what, Dad, we, we probably should go after them. He said, oh, no, they'll come back. In fact, the first one will be back in 30 seconds. The others will eventually drift back in. Well, how do you know that? Sure enough, 30 seconds later, the first town comes coming back in. After a while, the others start drifting back in. How did you know that, Dad? He said, because the first town is the only one that actually saw the rabbit. And when he got there, he realized the rabbit was gone. He came on back. The others just got caught up in the moment. And it took them a while to get through the emotion. They didn't even know what they were looking for. They just got caught up in it. Well, that's what happens so often, guys. So, so, so are you saying, Pastor Jim, that, that these guys were innocent? Oh, no, no, no. Uh-uh, no. I'm not saying that at all. Ask any law enforcement officer. We've got a lot of them in our church family. Pull up beside any one of them and, and say, uh, is ignorance of the law an excuse? In other words, if, if one of our patrolmen or one of our deputies pulls you one day uh, for speeding and you look at the officer and say, you know, officer, I had no idea the speed limit was 35 here. Uh, what would the officer say? Well, that's a bummer, dude. You're still getting a ticket because <laughs> the speed limit is 35, whether you knew it or not. So let me just bring it home. The truth is we have all, look at me. Sit real still so nobody will know. We have all said and done things that were hurtful to others, and we had no clue how hurtful they were at the moment that we did and said it. You did real good at sitting still, but it's true. We've all been there, done that. But whatever form it took, Romans 3.23, for all, and what does all include? me, you, us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory 
of God. The good news is because of what Jesus did on Calvary that day, we can be forgiven. You see, his prayer that day wasn't just for those who were there in that moment. His prayer covered every sin of every person of every generation across the generation. It was for you and me and thee. It was for all of us, which leads me to the third truth, the one I told you I wanted to camp out on for a few minutes this morning. Yes, he is Messiah. He is the Savior. Yes, he prayed for the, our greatest need to be met. The third truth is Jesus role modeled how we're to react when we're hurt. Jesus role modeled how we're to react when we get hurt, when we experience betrayal, when we do uh, get caught up in those things. So what did he do? He prayed they'd be forgiven. We've already established that I bombed in the moments that I've had a chance to do that and, and have had to come back and deal with that later. But the good news is God understands we're not God. He understands we don't have the same level of grace. He understands our flesh will get in the way. He understands that it can be very difficult, virtually impossible to be gracious in the midst of the pain of betrayal and hurt and the other things that go on in our lives. So what God does for us is he gives us a series of choices that we are to make that will help us move toward the place that Jesus was at on the cross that day. And I want to lay out those choices for you, and I'm going to ask you sincerely to make them before we leave this room today. I'm going to give you an opportunity to seriously consider, will I make these choices? Choice number one is I choose to pray for them. I choose to pray for those people that hurt me. I choose to pray for those people who abused me, who betrayed me, who did those things. I choose to pray for them. Here's what Jesus said, Luke chapter 6, verse 27, 28. But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those, pray for those who mistreat you. That's what Jesus was modeling for us on, on the cross. You see, he didn't just forgive them, he prayed that the Father would forgive them. He prayed for them. Do, do you understand why prayer is the first choice when we've been hurt? Do, do, do you understand why? I mean, I would love to tell you the reason why is that when you pray for somebody, their heart will change and they'll come back and apologize. I, I would love to tell you that's the reason. And it does happen sometimes. But you know what that prayer actually does more than anything else? I promise you, you can't pray for somebody without you changing. When you start praying... Something happens in you. Fact is, you can't pray for somebody very long before God will begin to bring healing into the equation. Let me explain why. You see, prayer is not just about asking God to do stuff. That's what we tend to think of it as. Okay, sometimes we think about praising the Lord as, as a matter of prayer and sometimes thanking the Lord for something he's done as prayer. But oftentimes we think of prayer as a transaction. We think of it as, okay, God, thank you for what you did. I praise you for who you are. Here's something that I need. Would you do this for me? Would you do that for me? And there's a sense in which those are appropriate prayers. Those are certainly plenty of those kinds of prayers in Scripture. But at the end of the day, you know what prayer is? It's dialogue, communication with the God of the universe. That's what it is. Prayer is about intimacy with God. C.S. Lewis was asked one time when his wife was uh, dealing, battling terminal cancer, do you believe 
your wife's going to be healed? And Lewis said, I'm praying that she will. But at the end of the day, I don't just pray to get God to do something. I'm praying because I need him right now. I need his strength and I need his grace and I need his help and I need hope and he's the source. Prayer at the end of the day is about intimacy with God. Now you're tracking with me, do you? It's like this, because we're going somewhere. I want you to go with me on this journey, okay? I told you a couple of weeks ago that eventually we begin to resemble what we rehearse. Do you remember that? Those of you who are here, we begin to resemble what we rehearse. You begin to look like what you focus on. If you focus on a person, you will eventually begin to focus on, uh, begin to look like that person. And we've all been in those settings as children when our parents do things and we say as kids, when I'm older and I have kids, I will never do what my daddy did. And then later we have kids and we hear our father's voice come out of our mouths right? We, we tend to become what we focus on. Well, if prayer is about focusing on the Lord, not just trying to get him to do something, but it's actually communing with him, being intimate with him, spending time with him on who he is. Who did I say he was? The Messiah, the Savior of the world. On, on the forgiveness that we need, Lord, help me to see my part in all of this and forgive me on his role model for you and me on the cross. Lord, help me not just to be forgiven, but to be a forgiver like you. The more we focus on him, the more we start to see the person who hurt us through his eyes. Do I need to say that again? The more we focus on him and who he is and what he's done for us and the role model that he is for us, the more we begin to see the person or persons who hurt us through his eyes. Hear me, whatever level of hurt or betrayal that you've struggled with in your life, healing always begins with prayer. So can we stop right here for just a second? And let me ask a deeply personal question. I'm going to, whether you say it's okay or not, but it's nice to ask, you know. You don't have to respond, just. So who hurt you? And it still tends to impact your life in negative ways. It still impacts your relationship, still impacts how you feel about that person, how you feel about the world. Who hurt you? Who are you thinking about when I even describe those things? Will you pray with me now? Pray silently, pray aloud, I don't care, but would you pray, oh God, I'm hurting and I need your healing? Oh God, would you help me to see you become a little more like you? And would you help me to begin to see the person or people the way you see them? Give me the grace to make the second choice. So what's the first choice in following Jesus' role model? It's pray. What's the second choice? It's I choose to forgive them. Hear me, guys, if you wait until you're hurt to decide whether or not you're going to be a forgiver, you never will, nor will I. 
You decide in advance, I choose to be a forgiver. I choose to be like Jesus. I choose to be a forgiver so that when it comes and it's hard, you've already made the decision who you are. I choose to forgive them. Now, don't make a dash for the door. That preacher's done lost his mind. He has no idea what I've been through. I need you to understand that, no, I don't know what you've been through, and I'm not here making light of it by any sense of the imagination. Please don't hear that. My heart breaks for you when you're hurt. It does. I just need you to know that this isn't optional. Matthew chapter 6, verse 14 and 15, for if you forgive men when they sin against you, what does it say? Your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Why? Why? Why would a loving God who loves you and wants to forgive you, wants it so much that even on the cross, that's what he prayed for first and foremost. Why would he take such a hard line on this subject? It's because he loves you and he wants to forgive you. And giving and receiving forgiveness are intertwined. Giving and receiving grace are completely intertwined. You cannot separate being forgiven and being a forgiver. They are the same continuum in our lives, the same cycle in our lives. One feeds the other. One is required for the other. That's how God set up the system. Uh, Dr. Jerry Bridgers wrote, forgiveness is the bridge that we ourselves must walk across in order to find the forgiveness that we need. Simply put, our own healing only comes when we become agents of healing. Grace received and grace given. Forgiveness given and forgiveness received. Healing received, healing given. It all is tied together, and that's hard. Let's just be honest, guys. In our flesh, in our humanity, I don't care how sanctified you are. I don't care how full of the Holy Ghost you are. <laughs> That's hard. Can I get an amen in the room? Our humanity goes, ah, well, I want them to feel what I feel. I want them to hurt the way I feel. And it's hard to even think of the person who hurt you without thinking about the event when they did it. Louis Augsburg wrote a book called Caring Enough to Forgive, and I would encourage you to pick up this book. It's not a current book. It's been out for 20 years, I suppose, or more, but, but it's a powerful little book, Caring Enough to Forgive. He, here's one of the quotes from his book that I've always loved. I wrote it down to make sure I get it word for word. We attach our feelings to the moment when we were hurt, and we make that moment immortal. Every time we think of it, it assaults us. We sleep with it or lie awake with it, it travels with us. It hovers over us when we're with the people we love. And it doesn't even leave us when those who hurt us die. For it is a parasite sucking the joy and life right out of us. But Pastor Jim, you don't understand how bad they hurt me. I don't. But none of us have endured what Jesus did. And he's our role model. The good news is, is God doesn't expect us to do it the way Jesus did it because of our flesh. 
He understands that. And so he's actually, there's a process that we go through that's, that's really well defined and easy to follow. I want to share it with you for just a few minutes. I think it's a four-stage process that helps us in this forgiving journey. Now, you choose to be a forgiver, but that doesn't ex uh, excuse you from or release you from this process. This is what we go through. The first stage in the forgiveness process for we human beings is the hurt stage. The hurt stage is that stage when the wind is knocked out of us. We can't believe what just happened. We can't believe that person did that or didn't do that, said that or didn't say that, acted that way. We can't believe that group of people would do something like that. We're just blown away by it. We don't think we'll ever get past it. We don't think we'll ever get over it. We can't see those people even at a distance without freaking out it's just it just it just devastates us that's the hurt stage of the forgiveness process sadly enough I've worked with people and you perhaps have too who never get past this stage because how do you get out of the hurt stage you choose to pray and forgive that's what you do when you do you move to the hate stage well oh come on Jim I'm a Christian I love Jesus I don't hate nobody <laughs> You know what the definition of hate is? People say hate is the opposite of love. It's not. You know what the opposite of love is, according to Scripture? It's fear. Perfect love casts out all fear. Hate is an emotion that says, I want you to hurt the way I hurt. It's an emotion that says, I want you to feel what I feel. That's why a child psychologist working with a child who's perhaps come through an abusive parenting situation, uh, they will talk to them with a smooth ball and a fuzzy ball, and they will throw the smooth ball at them and then they'll throw the fuzzy ball at them because children are so conflicted because they've got these feelings of love for their parent, but they've got this feeling of hate for their parent, and they can't reconcile those two things. Well, those two things can live within us, but eventually they eat us alive. So you move from the hurt stage to the hate stage oh, I want them to feel what I felt I want them to understand how painful that was I want them to get it eventually you move to the healing stage how do you get from the hurt stage to the hate stage to the healing stage you choose to pray and forgive you choose to pray and forgive you choose to pray and forgive that's what you do the healing stage is what Lewis Augsburg calls divine surgery. And for the first time, when you get into the healing stage of this journey, you begin to see the person separate from the deed that they did. We read Augsburg's quote a moment ago, until you get to this stage, every time you see that person, it stirs it up all over again because you can't separate the person from the deed. But eventually, you get to this place where you start seeing the person for who they are, a weak fallible human being in need of grace just like me the action then becomes a separate thing from the person and only when you get to that place that divine surgery place do you have any chance for stage four which is the healthy relationship restored stage healthy relationship restored stage now let me tell you quickly I, the only way healthy relationship restored is possible is if both parties go through this journey together 
And so that's stage four is not always there, but you can get to stage three where you can see that person without immediately feeling the pain. You can see that person without immediately feeling the animosity, without feeling the hurt or the hate all over again. And, and, and I just described those three stages, hurt, hate, healing. It, it's, not a, it's not linear, it's not a rocket ship. It's hurt, then hate, back to hurt, back to hate, back to healing, back to hate, back to hurting. It's, it's a cyclical kind of process. But the only way you get through it is to pray and forgive. The old saying, time heals all wounds, is a lie. Time doesn't heal anything. It takes time for healing to come. But the only thing that brings healing is prayer and forgiveness. Nelson Mandela after 27 years of imprisonment for opposing apartheid, you would expect him to hate the government and to be stuck in this process of hurt, hate, hurt, hate, at least hold a grudge. But he's quoted, we certainly would understand if he did, but he's quoted as saying, as I walked out the door toward the gate that would lead to my freedom, I knew if I didn't leave my bitterness and hatred behind, I'd still be in prison. Okay, Pastor Jim, I, I, I hear that. And I've done that. I've prayed for them. And, and I've said I forgive them. But it comes back. What, what do I do now? What do I do that? Will you forgive them again? You pray and forgive again. You pray and forgive again. Look, Matthew chapter 18, verse 21 and 2. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times. Jesus answered, what did he say? I tell you not seven times, but 70 times. Seven times 70, some translations say. Do the math. Seven times 70 is 490 times a day. Jesus is saying, forgive them every 2.93 minutes if that's what you got to do. You forgive and then you continue to forgive. You pray and forgive and pray and forgive. And it moves you slowly through this process. Our God is amazing. We confess. He forgives. It's wiped out, cast into the sea of forgetfulness, never to be remembered again. We ain't so amazing. Sometimes we have to forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive. Pastor Ryan, our Goldsboro lead pastor tells the story of a good friend of his permission to share his story though I won't share names and he's not from Wayne County but several years ago he was uh, somebody came gave witness in court against him it was a total fabrication a total lie and this guy served three years in prison while he was in prison, prison ministry folks came by and he gave his life to Christ and when he got out of prison he immediately made a beeline to uh, the church that Pastor Ryan was then on staff with. He began to grow in the Lord, eventually joined the praise team, became one of the, the people on the praise team, a musician and singer, and he was involved and engaged in that church for, for a long, long time and was a really super guy until one day he, he called Pastor Ryan. He said, man, I don't believe it. I was in Lowe's today, and I saw the guy across the store, and I caught myself looking for a lead pipe to go kill him with. And I thought, dude, you are past this. Why are you still doing this? Because our humanity limits us. We have to keep coming back to the cross. 
We have to keep coming back to our role model. We have to pray and forgive and pray and forgive. And again, please understand that in a place like this, on a day like this, with the online audience that we have literally around the world, I know I'm talking to people who have been wounded in horrific ways. I'm not making light of any of it. I know there's incredible pain in some marriages, almost unbelievable. I, I've known women, I've worked with women through the years who will have nothing to do with any man because of the way a man treated her somewhere along the way or men who will never trust any woman again because of the way some woman has treated him. Children who carry scars because of the way they were parented and say, okay, well, I'll marry, but I'm never going to have children. I'm not bringing children into this world, so they might have to endure what I endured. Christians who will not darken the doors of a church because of the way they were treated by Christians when they were there or by preachers when they were in proximity to them. I get it. I understand. I mean, they'll say, yeah, I'm all for this God thing. Just don't make me go to church. What do you do? When you've been hurt like that, what do you do when the very people you were trying to be in relationship with, to maybe even help, are the ones that betrayed you like Jesus endured? What do you do? You do what Jesus did. Not just because you're required to forgive in order to be forgiven, but because in that process you find healing in your own life. You begin with a prayer. Oh, God, help me to see them the way you see them. Give me your grace so that I can be gracious. Let healing begin, and you choose to forgive. And you do that over and over and over until you're ready for choice three. You think what I've talked about so far has been tough? Choice three is simply, I choose to bless them. Romans 12, 20 and 21, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome evil, uh, overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So the question is, who do you need to do an act of kindness for? Not just pray for, not just choose to forgive, but actually do an act of kindness for. Who do you need to, to bless? Now, again, I'm not suggesting you put yourself in harm's way. There may be some people, you know, forgiveness is a gift that we're called to give. Trust is earned. You may not need to put yourself back in a harm's way situation. Maybe that act of kindness is anonymous. I don't know. You decide the best way to do it. But just like prayer, something happens in you. When you take forgiveness to this level, and that is you begin to find healing in your own life and you get released from it. You create the only possibility for healing to come for you and for those who hurt you. But again, Jim, you, you, you don't know what he did. You don't know what she did. You're right, I don't. I realize that. But here's what I know. We'll bring this to a close. The story in the book of Genesis from the earliest parts of human history, story of Joseph and his brothers. Some of you have heard of the, of the story of Joseph and the coat of many colors. He was hurt bad by his brothers. I mean, one of his brothers wanted to kill him. 
The other brothers said, talked him out of it, not because they didn't want to kill him too, but because they're afraid their dad would kill them if they did. And so they decided that they would throw him in a pit until some slave traders came along and they sold their own brother into slavery, which set up a whole series of multiple years of pain for Joseph's life. He wound up being accused of, 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 uh, of sexual abuse. He wound up in prison. He, he wound up uh, being betrayed by some of his fellow prisoners who promised to help him and didn't. But but ultimately it put him at a place where God gave him the interpretation to the dream that Pharaoh had had, which became the solution to the drought and famine that came to the nation. And ultimately he was made second in command of the most powerful nation on the earth, the nation of Egypt and thousands of lives, including his own family were saved. In that setting, Joseph is reunited with his brothers years later for the first time. So much has happened through these years. So much has changed through these years that they didn't even recognize Joseph when they saw him in all the finery of his second-in-command kind of uniform. And when they realized who he was and who he'd become, they were terrified. They just knew he was going to get them back. But he forgave his brothers and was reconciled to them. And Genesis 50, 20, I didn't give you the scripture. I'll just read it to you. Records what he told them. He said, you intended to harm me but God intended it for good to accomplish what is not being done, the saving of many lives. Only a healed heart can see God in the midst of the pain. Am I telling you that God will take all that pain away? I wish I could. I, you know, they say you should forgive and forget, but there's some, how do you forget some stuff? I mean, what did happen? How do you just forget that it ever happened? I, that's not biblical. But I believe the scars can come to remind you of grace instead of pain. I believe the scars can come to remind you of healing instead of death. I believe the scars can remind you that in Christ all things are possible to them that believe. I'll hush, I promise, but are you ready for me to ask the question again? Who have you been carrying hurt, hate, anger toward, pain every time you think of their name? Who do you need to pray for? Who do you need to forgive? Who do you need to bless? For your sake, even more than for theirs. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for showing us what grace looks like. That through all the things that you endured, your first, last words were, Father, forgive them. They're fallible, they're weak, they're confused, they don't understand, they have no clue what they're doing. They don't understand they're being pawns of Satan's schemes. 
manipulated by the leaders of the day who were jealous of Jesus. They don't have a clue. Even the religious leaders of the day didn't understand the eternal implications of their choices. But whether they do or not, I choose to pray. I choose to forgive. I choose to bless. Can you pray that prayer this morning? Maybe you've never prayed a prayer like that before. Maybe, maybe you're sitting there thinking, this, no, forget it. So maybe your first prayer is, Lord, would you forgive me? Give grace to me? Would you help me to understand that you prayed that prayer on the cross for me? Not just for Roman soldiers 2,000 years ago, but for me. I accept grace. I accept a fresh start from you, and I thank you for it. In Jesus' name. Then for all of us, Lord, help me to focus on you in prayer. Give me the grace to be a forgiver. I don't have it, but you do. Take me all the way to the place that I can be a blessing, not a curse for those who have hurt me as Jesus did. Father, you know who's praying. You know exactly what's going on in their lives. I pray that you would show yourself powerful right now with grace and mercy and forgiveness, help and hope and strength healing in Jesus' name.